The reading this morning is from Esther, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, and can be found on page 503 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the Lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them, If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurned on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hannah, thank you very much. I don't know what you're thinking as you've just heard that. Maybe you're thinking it's not just the city of Susa that is bewildered. Uh, what on earth are we doing in this sort of story? Uh, maybe particularly if you're a visitor, if you're a guest to us uh, today, it's lovely to have you with us, but you've come in halfway through uh, the story, partway through the story of uh, Queen Esther, 
Sarah mentioned that uh, she was a, a young girl who was taken to the royal court and made uh, queen in place of the previous queen who, who was uh, deposed. And it is an odd story to our ears. To our culture, it seems so very far away, very distant. Uh, and we do find it unusual. Uh, and we might think, what is a story like this doing in the Bible? We might think that even more when we realize that God's name is never mentioned in Esther. Not once is God uh, mentioned. But as you can see from the title on the screen overhead, uh, we've called the series The Silent Sovereignty of God. Because what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks is that though God may not be mentioned, there is evidence of his work everywhere. Uh, so uh, we've seen that a, a few times. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw the silent sovereignty of God against the background of, of human pride and power. As King Xerxes throws this enormous party, uh, and it just looks like uh, all, all sorts going on, and where's God in it all? But, but God was working. And in chapter 2, we see that the silent sovereignty of God in the good and the bad circumstances uh, of life. Uh, and then we come to chapter 3 today, uh, and we, need, we meet a new uh, character. Uh, we meet Haman. And uh, we're going to see the silent sovereignty of God, despite the hate of enemies. Because this passage makes clear that there are enemies that God's people have to face. There are evil forces out there, people who wish to oppose and challenge God and hate his people and, and want to hurt them. And that's a fairly sobering thought, a very difficult thought, I guess, for many people to deal with. But the Bible is honest and realistic about that. In fact, during the Thanksgiving, did you notice one of the prayers we prayed for the children was to protect them from evil? And that's partly because the Bible is realistic that there is evil out there. And sometimes that evil uh, looks like human beings who have decided to oppose uh, God. And that is what we see today with this character oh dear that's not come out quite right sorry um this character Haman uh, the passage wants us to know that this guy is a bad guy and actually nearly everything in the passage is trying to make that point uh, the author is trying to tell us that Haman uh, is a bad guy uh, first of all his very name Haman means to rage or to be turbulent. Uh, so, you know, sometimes names uh, matter, don't they? And when a name uh, means something like that, uh, you know this isn't going to be a nice person. This isn't going to be a good person. When I was growing up, uh, we had a VHS cassette. That tells you how long ago it was. A VHS cassette of, um, uh, of 101 Dalmatians. And, of course, there's a character in 101 Dalmatians, Cruella de Vil. Now, if you're called Cruella de Vil, you're not going to be a goodie, right? Well, for the Jewish reader who hears the word Haman to rage or to be turbulent, they're going to listen to that and say, not a goodie. This is not a good person. Um, so that, that's, that's one thing about him, his name that, that tells us this is not going to be a good person. Another thing, his, his background. So see in verse 1, he's called Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And King Agag was an Amalekite king, and the Amalekites were historically horrible to God's people. When they came out as refugees from Egypt, the Amalekites saw an opportunity to get rich by plundering them, and so they attacked this group of refugees on their way out. Uh, and Agag was one of their kings, 
And God had said, because of the way they have treated my people, they have made themselves my enemy forever. And so this Haman, whose name means to rage, to be turbulent, is an Agagite. So he's part of this people group that have always been enemies of God's people. Again, the author wants us to know, this is not a good guy. We're going to expect him to be the bad guy. Uh, And then, of course, finally, there are his actions during this passage. It's quite shocking. I don't know if you picked up on that as we went through the passage. Uh, And we're going to bring some of that out in a minute. But his plan here is because he is not honored appropriately in his own eyes, he wants to destroy an entire people group. That's pretty shocking. Ruthless hateful, evil. And Haman, Haman, uh, the enemy of the Jews, as he's called in verse 10, it is sort of like the personification of God's enemies. You look at him, and that is what an enemy of God and his people uh, looks like. And that's what the writer wants us to see. This is who Haman is. Uh, And what do we learn about God's enemies in this passage? Well, I'm going to walk us uh, quickly through three things about God's enemies. Sorry if this is a bit small, it might be. The first thing is God's enemies pursue their own glory. Now, if you weren't here last week, let me just briefly recap what had happened at the end of chapter 2. Esther had been put in the royal court as the queen, and her cousin Mordecai was was one of the sort of officials in the court, and um, there was a plot to kill the king, King Xerxes. And um, Mordecai had found out about it. And because Esther was queen and in the court, he was able to tell Esther... She was able to tell the king they were able to stop the plot. So Mordecai's just done a great job. Good work, Mordecai. Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured, and what would we be expecting? Well, we'd expect him to honour Mordecai. We'd expect him to honour the one who foiled the plot, but that's not what happened. King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So rather than Mordecai, who seems to deserve the honor, this man, Haman, gets the honor instead. Okay, so now this guy is in a position of power. Verse 2, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. Sorry, I'm being really inconsistent with the pronunciation of that name. It's just to increase my odds of getting it right at least once. Uh, Haman, uh, Mordecai, but Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honour. And we don't know why Mordecai wouldn't do it. Some people have suggested it's because Mordecai will only honour God. It's a very noble, uh, spiritual thing that he's doing. And and some people have suggested he's just been a bit petulant. He thought he deserved to be promoted himself. So he's just, but whatever the reason, he won't honour him. The royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's commands? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Haman sees Mordecai the Jew, who will not bow down and give him honor, and he is enraged. 
And not just enraged, but see what the rage causes him to do. Verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. What we see here is a man who has an idolatry of power. He loves power. He, he loves to be the one who's in control, calling the shots. Uh, and if you do any sort of uh, work and analysis of, of people who struggle with power and, and people who want power, one of their problem emotions very often is anger. That actually a, contr- a desire for ultimate control and power goes hand in hand with anger whenever anyone or anything opposes that or gets in the way uh, of that. Uh, and Harmon cannot cope with not being honoured, so much so that he flies into a rage and he's willing to commit a genocide. Now, here's the problem. Harmon wants his own honour. He wants honour from everybody. He wants to be glorified and be in the position of power. And that makes, means he's headed for a clash with God's people. Because anybody who desires that kind of power, that kind of honour, that kind of authority, that kind of control, is always going to be in a head-on collision with God's people. Because those who worship and love God are always going to give God first place and put him in honour above all others. And if, like Harmon, you want your own honour, you're pursuing your own glory, you don't want God to get it. And so you're setting yourself up in opposition to God and you're going to come in conflict with his people as well. Now, I guess if we're someone here today who follows and worships God, uh, then we just need to be prepared that that might mean there's a clash for us as well. If we meet people in the world who are after their own glory, and we're going to be people who say, well, actually, we need to give glory to God first, that might not always be well received. It might not play out exactly like this, where someone's going to go away and commit a genocide, but we might need to expect opposition if we won't bow to those who would like to lord it over everyone else. If we save first place in our heart for God, that might create conflicts. Well, God's enemies pursue their own glory. Uh, God's enemies are effective uh, and brutal. So he's flown off into this rage and wants to destroy Mordecai and all the Jewish people. We'll skip over verse 7 for just a moment. We will come back to it. Uh, Verse 8, he sets his plan in action. Then Harman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury." Haman knows all about the darkest bits of politics. He knows how to use every dirty trick in the book here, doesn't he? Did you notice that? Uh, He's a master of spin and half-truths. There's this certain people, the Jewish people in your provinces, O king, uh, and their customs are different from those of all the other people. Well, that's true. Uh, The Jewish people would have had different laws and customs from their Old Testament scriptures. 
And they do not obey the king's laws. Well, actually, that's at best a half-truth. There, there were some stories of people like Daniel in these kingdoms who would um, uh, stand up on principle from time to time. But most of the time, uh, the Jewish people were quite happy to uh, follow the, the laws of the society they were in, as long as they didn't clash with their own scriptures. So it's at best a, a half-truth. So it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He twists and spins the truth in such a way in order to get the king to think, yeah, there are threats. Uh, They're a problem. And just in case his uh, propaganda didn't work, see the end of verse 9? I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators. Massive bribe. All the worst bits, the dirtiest and grubbiest bits uh, of political maneuvering seen here in Haman. Uh, Actually, that shouldn't surprise us. Throughout history, it's always been the way that half-truths or outright lies have been told about God's people in order to turn others against them. The very early Christians in the first couple of centuries, uh, the claim went round that they were uh, incestuous cannibals. Uh, You can see why that claim might have come about because of uh, the fact they called one another brother and sister, even if they maybe were married uh, to them. And of course, they claimed to be eating, they were talking about eating the body and blood of of Jesus in communion, but, but it wasn't true. It was a spun lie to get public opinion against them. They, they weren't engaged in that kind of uh, behavior. Uh, and Christians down the centuries have had what's known as a bad press. So, for example, the Puritans. Yeah, you, you know the image of the Puritans, stuffy old fuddy-duddies want to spoil everybody else's fun. There's that fantastic quotation from H.L. Mencken, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. But if you read about their lives, these were people who were full of joy. Joy at the simple pleasures of life and went around encouraging one another and having fun and enjoying life together. In fact, a lot of people's problem with the earliest Puritans was that they seemed to make the Christian life far too easy. They were far too joyous. It can't be as easy as that, they thought. And yet we have this very different image, don't we, to how they were. And I guess in part that's because... There are those out there who would always want to spin the truth to make God's people seem like a problem. That gave me pause for thought when I I considered how I react to news stories. You know the ones that come out from time to time of some Christian somewhere who's been persecuted or dismissed at work or has had to take their children out of school because they've not agreed with something that's been going on. I don't know what your instinct is when you hear those stories. And very often mine is to say, well, they were probably just being loudmouths and awkward and difficult, weren't they? Just making it harder for the rest. But maybe if I take this seriously, maybe I need to consider the fact that perhaps they have been given a bad press. Perhaps there are those people out there who want to twist the truth against God's people. It wouldn't be completely surprising, would it? Well, Haman does that here, and it's very effective. Verse 10 The king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, probably because he just wanted him to use it to get rid of the, use the money to help further his plot to get rid of the Jews. Do with the people as you please. He's given the ring, the symbol of power. Uh, so, So now he has all the king's authority to sign things into law and use the signet ring to make it binding. He has maneuvered himself into a position where he can do exactly what he wants 
and all the power seems to be his. And he is brutally effective. Verses 12 to 14, uh, I'm not going to read them again, but as you scan through them, uh, the word all and every comes out quite a lot. Remember, Xerxes ruled a huge empire of 127 provinces, and yet Haman is managing to get everyone out into the cities, into the streets of every province. The message goes out everywhere. The laws are signed. Everything's passed. He is really effective. He's a good administrator. So that by the end, by the end of verse 14, all his plans are in place. On the selected day, the end of the Jews is going to come, it seems. He is massively effective uh, at... uh, at getting his decree issued across this huge empire. And verse 15 is slightly chilling, isn't it? The courtiers went out, spurred on by the king's command. The the edict was issued. In the citadel of Susa, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. There's a kind of coldness about this guy that they can just sit and drink casually whilst the whole city is panicking over this strange decree and the fact that Hundreds, thousands of people look like they're about to be put to death very soon. God's enemies are brutal and effective. Uh, It's not just that we need to know that there are those out there who might oppose us if we're Christian believers, but they are powerful. The Bible actually says behind the, the human forces who would oppose God's people, there are spiritual forces. The devil is one such force. And one writer said of the devil, he'd pick up the mountains and throw them at you if he could. And he can. It is meant to bring us up short, to give us pause for thought. There is a powerful enemy out there. And yet, this is why we need our third point. We ought to be realistic. We ought to realize there are enemies out there and they're powerful. But, importantly, very importantly, God's enemies are not in control. They are not in control. Let's go back to that verse I skipped over, verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now Haman knows that he is not finally in control. There's, a, there's a, an admission here because he leaves it to chance to decide when he's going to start his plan, when he's going to put it into action. He, he rolls a dice. That's what the pur is. Yeah, it looked something a little like this. That's not life-size, by the way. It's not a huge thing. It's just a little. Uh, and he would roll it to see when he was going to put his plan uh, into effect. It's an admission, isn't it? I'm going to leave it to the chances, to the fates, to decide, because I can't control it all. And indeed, he can't. It's just the little hint in this quite dark passage that actually evil is not in complete control here. It's a little dice that he throws. And actually, he throws it in the first month. Did you notice in verse 7? And they only put the plan into action on the 12th month. That means he waits 11 months. And actually, that wait of 11 months, as we're going to see, as we come back and see the story unfold, is going to give Esther and Mordecai just enough time to maneuver. Because although he threw a lot 
thinking that it's all random chance. Uh, we know, we know as Christians something uh, even more important. So that, that quote there, does God play dice? Albert Einstein, the famous physicist, once said, I don't believe God plays dice. He was talking about science. He wasn't talking about this. But he hadn't read Esther. Because God actually is in control, the Bible tells us, of even how every dice falls. Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. Here he throws a lot, a dice, Haman, to see when he's going to do his attack. But God is in control of when that dice lands. And that control means that there's just enough time and just enough space for Esther and Mordecai to move. God's enemies are ruthless and brutal. But they're not in total control. And they will not have the last word. All the evil plotting and scheming of Haman will be overturned by God. He will bring it about for good. Haman has the worst of motives. The Lord has the best of plans. Haman plans destruction. God plans deliverance. Such an important truth to know. When we're going to go out there, and if enemies are real and we might face opposition, it will be hard sometimes. There will be times when life feels bleak and it looks like all the power is against us. And in those dark moments, that's when we need to remember the truth that behind reality there is a good and perfect God with a good plan. We need to cling to that and hope in him. And know that he is a God who specializes in bringing triumph out of seeming disasters. God never plans evil. But he can overturn evil and bring about good. And if you want to know most obviously of all where he does that, of course. It's a repeated theme throughout the Bible. We see it in Genesis. Joseph says at the end of Genesis, you intended to harm me. God intended it for good. We see time and again God's enemies making the worst plans to destroy God and his people. And God overturning and overcoming them. Most clearly of all, of course, we see it at the cross of the Lord Jesus, don't we? The world does its worst. The most perfectly good man who ever lived, God in the flesh, doing nothing but love and care for others. And the world does its worst and puts him to death. And God overturns the verdict, brings him back to life, because God has a plan of salvation. That's a wonderful truth to know as we go into this week. Because I don't know what you're facing but you can face it with a God like this. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story of Esther. Thank you that there we see in in verse 7, just an innocuous little detail about a lot, apparently random chance. And yet the writer so wants us to know that, that that decision of how that lot fell your fingerprints all over it. You give them just enough space, just enough time for Esther and Mordecai to move because you have a plan of salvation, a plan of deliverance for your people, even though there are enemies out there who oppose you and seek to harm your people.
Thank you, that's the kind of God you are, the God who specializes in salvation projects that seem impossible. We pray that we will know and understand that this week, whatever we're facing, and that would deepen and strengthen our trust in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.